this is Katerina Howard. And Veronica de Michelis. And this is the first part of our pre-conference series of podcast episodes, where we will be talking about the sessions we're excited about and interviewing the presenters. Today, we're going to present the sessions that will take place on Wednesday and on Thursday. So, Veronica, which sessions are you looking forward to the most? Well, I have signed up for two ASD sessions on Wednesday, and I really look forward to them. One of them is the Definitive Guide to Making the Internet and Its Technologies Work Better for Translators by Samer Raga. And the second one is NMT and Me, Securing Your Future as a Language Professional in the Age of Artificial Intelligence and Neural Machine Translation by Jay Marciano. And on Thursday, I'm really looking forward to the session on project management tips, tricks, and tools for freelancers by Manuela Sampaio. What about you? Well, I will not be doing any ASD sessions this year, but... On Thursday, I would like to shout out uh, and mention Maria Guzenka and Eugenia Titsokolska's session about the SLD ATA certification exam prep group. And I probably will not attend it, but I am very happy that this initiative took off and that they will present at the ATA conference. Yes, this is very exciting. Thank you for listening. And don't forget that there will be two more episodes one about the sessions on Friday and the last one about the sessions on Saturday. Hi, I'm happy to be here. My name is Athena Matilski, and I will be presenting three sessions at the ATA conference this fall. They are skills building for the seasoned interpreter, uh, two Roads Diverge, which is a comparison of legal interpreting versus medical interpreting, and a session called Ethics in the Real World. So to introduce myself, I am Athena Matilski. I have a bachelor's degree from Rutgers University where I studied Spanish interpreting and translation. I'm a native English speaker, but I started learning Spanish in college and I really, really liked it. And I also started French in college. So I lived in Honduras for a year and really studied pretty hard for my second languages. And I started working as an interpreter pretty much as soon as I got back from volunteering in Honduras. And I started working to pass the different certification tests that would allow me to work. I did all that in New Jersey. So I took the approval exam for becoming a Spanish interpreter. Uh, and then I took the federal exam and I was, I was certified as a federal interpreter. And I also am certified as a healthcare interpreter and that's all for Spanish. I worked freelance for quite a while, and then I took a position as a staff interpreter at one of the courts in New Jersey. And then two years ago, I left that position and I came to Montreal, Canada, where I have been working on my French. And last fall, I became approved. In, in New Jersey, approval is the same thing as certification. So I became approved as a French interpreter. And this fall, I'm going to be starting to get my master's degree at Glendon College in Toronto for conference interpreting. So I've been doing a lot over the last few years, but right now my main focus has actually been giving trainings and teaching other people how to improve their skills and specifically to pass tests, but then also to be competent interpreters in the court and medical settings. So let's start talking about your skill building for the seasoned interpreter session on Wednesday. 
Sure. So that session is going to be a special three hour session and it's going to be more hands on and hopefully there'll be time for some actual uh, individual feedback to the participants. Um, but we're going to break down all three modes of interpreting. So we're going to look at site translation, consecutive interpretation and simultaneous interpretation. I will actually be giving the participants exercises to perform on the spot. So everybody who comes should bring a recording device, which if you just have your cell phone and a voice memo app, that'll be fine. Uh, but we'll be able to tackle problem areas like names and numbers and speakers going really fast and long complicated utterances and work to actually understand how you can make your skills better in all three modes. And this is good for interpreters working in all language pairs, right? That's correct. It's going to be presented in English and the the exercises will be language neutral, so I won't be giving feedback on, you know, how you say something in Spanish or Russian or anything else. It's going to be more about what are the skills that are universal to all interpreters and what are the mistakes that a lot of interpreters tend to make and how can we take our skills to the next level for whatever language you interpret. Speaking of your presentation called Two Roads Diverge, Medical Interpreting versus Legal Interpreting, what qualities and skills do clients generally look for in legal and healthcare interpreters? And um, are there some common things and differences? Honestly, I think that usually they're looking for somebody who will get the job done. I don't know that our clients generally are that discerning as to what makes a good interpreter and what doesn't, but I know that they will get frustrated if you have an interpreter who's interrupting a lot or who they can tell is not competent in one of their languages um, or is causing confusion. So that's universal, whether you're in court or you're in uh, a hospital setting. They're, they're going to want you to, to be able to, they're, they're going to want it to feel seamless. I don't think they necessarily understand what it takes to make it seamless. From my perspective as an interpreter, what, what makes us uh, able to fulfill our clients' needs is the ability to not only interpret very well from one language to the other, but also to manage situations that come up and be really transparent so that our clients actually know what's happening if somebody has a problem for example and that we're not going to go off and have a five-minute conversation with the LEP individual while the English-speaking person is left out of the loop or vice versa so an interpreter who's transparent who makes sure that everybody in the room knows what's going on and is able to very quickly identify and resolve uh, linguistic issues that come up in, in both settings and then in, in medical and community settings, the ability to navigate cultural uh, differences and sometimes even work as an advocate, that's also going to be important. And, and that is where the two fields diverge a bit. Well, a lot is where uh, in court you can't really play the cultural broker or the advocate, whereas in a hospital and healthcare setting, you're sometimes actually expected to. Okay, so for the uh, healthcare interpreters, that's not just the subject matter knowledge, but also the people skills. Exactly. And I, I would say the people skills goes to both. You need to have good people skills regardless. But as a healthcare interpreter, you need to also be able to uh, navigate issues of culture and sometimes issues of, of discrimination or, or power imbalance. Is that something that you will be talking about more extensively during your session on medical versus legal interpreting? 
Yes, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the codes of ethics for both fields and where they, they diverge is precisely where I just mentioned this idea that our role is more limited in court, whereas it is uh, more extensive in a medical setting. And so we're going to be talking more in depth about that during the session. Would you advise beginner interpreters to focus on one of these fields, so legal or healthcare, or explore as many options as possible? I would say that it's fine to explore many options, but you should keep a focus at the beginning just because it's overwhelming anyway. Um, you have to become competent in all three modes. And to add on top of that two different fields and two different types of roles is, is very challenging. So I would advise people who are just starting out to pick one, but they're certainly not mutually exclusive. And once you have a good foundation in either medical interpreting or legal interpreting, it's a lot simpler to make the transition. Personally, I started in medical interpreting. I, back when I was in college, I actually did some internships and I think that that was a good way to go. Um, sometimes it's a, a less forgiving, it can be a more forgiving setting, but at the same time, um, that can be a problem because it's just as important as court interpreting. And if you're in a medical sitting and you're not competent, uh, but they've let you in because there aren't as many certifications, that can be an issue. So I would say, you know, know that either way you have a lot of responsibility on your shoulders and it, and you really need to do a good job. But for the medical setting, I think that there's a little bit more opportunity for beginning interpreters. And sometimes there's more opportunity as well for supervision. Uh, like I had at my internship where I was just beginning. So I had somebody watching me just to make sure that I wasn't making any mistakes or that when I did, they would be corrected. I a follow-up question from a non-interpreter. It, it seems like the weight of responsibility it, is just crushing. <laughs> you know, just how do you overcome this, especially if you're just starting out? You, you transition to teaching and then you just get to tell everybody else what to do. <laughs> um, no, honestly, it's a lot of pressure. And it's funny, I, I actually love training and that's been, my, that's been more of my focus for the last couple of years since I've been in Canada and I haven't been working as much as an interpreter. And it's nice to know that like people don't live or die based on what I say. Um, but that said, I love interpreting and it is an awesome responsibility. And I think that recognizing that and then... What I always say is that the best interpreter is not the interpreter who knows everything perfectly, who has every single last vocabulary word that they need to have, because that interpreter doesn't exist. The best interpreter is somebody who recognizes when they've made a mistake and they're not too proud to correct it, because we're all going to make mistakes. But if you have the ability to recognize when there's been an issue and correct it as soon as possible, then you should be okay. So I say, I mean, a lot goes into it, but making sure that you are very strict with yourself about your skills that you challenge yourself and you continue to improve that's very important and then also learning from experience and making sure that even if you are a great interpreter and you've passed all these tests you're still checking yourself and you are still correcting issues if they come up then then that's gonna that's the best that we can do so that that's how i handle the the crazy responsibility that is being an on-the-spot interpreter all right and the opposite of that, do you ever feel like there is um, a certain Dunning-Kruger effect for interpreters where people don't really know what they're doing, but they feel like they're acing it? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think that the interpreters, if I meet an interpreter who says like, oh yeah, I'm good, I don't need classes, I'm, you know, I know that I'm doing a great job, like, <laughs> I, I'm going to be suspicious of you then because our job is so challenging, it's really difficult to rest on our laurels. So, so yeah, I think that there are interpreters out there who think that they are better than they are, which is unfortunate because that can have pretty grave consequences. This was a nice bridge over to your last session, Ethics in the Real World. Could you tell us a little more about it? Yes, yeah, so my session on Ethics in the Real World, it basically I was inspired because people keep coming to me asking me what to do in certain situations. And I'm not always sure. Nobody's ever really sure. That's why we have our ethics situations, or our ethical classes, because situations come up that are complicated. Um, so what we're going to do for this session is take a look at our code of ethics. Um, we're gonna, it's going to be a briefer review than the one in Two Roads Diverge, but we will touch on both medical and legal codes of ethics, um, which are the main ones at this point that we have out there. Generally, the, the healthcare code of ethics would also cover other types of community interpreting, like education settings and church and that kind of thing. So we will touch on the different codes of ethics. And then we'll talk about actual things that have happened to us. So I'm going to ask the participants, I'm going to ask them to uh, think back on their own interpreting careers and what sticky situations have come up for them. And that's, that's the real world component. That's like, okay, well, what are you actually bringing to the table that has happened to you? And then I'm going to give the participants a couple different tools for hopefully being able to face such sticky situations in the future and have uh, even better outcomes than they may have had in the past. Obviously, there's a lot of ethical dilemmas that arise uh, when one interprets, whether in medical or um, legal settings. Will you be sharing, in addition to the, to the tools and the tips that you were mentioning, will you be sharing some of the resources that people can explore on their own, or maybe you can name a few now that could help people prepare for uh, these ethical dilemmas that can arise? Sure, um, I'm sure that I will be mentioning some during my session. What comes to my mind right now is just making sure that you're familiar with our stand of, standards of practice, your role in whatever setting you are in, which changes. Your role is gonna be different whether you're in court or you're in a hospital um, or you're in a church, you're, you are gonna have different roles. So you need to be very familiar with the codes of ethics and with um, our proper roles dependent on settings. And then the other thing that I recommend is that we have a network of people that we can go to because there are complicated things that come up and we have our codes of ethics and they're all like, oh yeah, we're all gonna be, you know, it, it makes it seem beautiful and like it's so easy, but it's not. And that's, that's why they're there. So I think that it is important to have colleagues that we can go to to discuss different situations, obviously while retaining confidentiality, but still saying, okay, this is the basic scenario that, that happened to me and how would you handle it? And then there are tools, um, specifically, I like one that um, Agustin de la Mora taught to me. He owns de la Mora Interpreter Training. And it's this concept of proactive versus reactive, where um, it's better to actually anticipate a situation and figure out what you can do to prevent it from happening in the first place. And we're going to talk about that in, in the session a little bit more in depth. But so I guess to, to summarize, I would say, know your role, know your codes of ethics, have people that you can consult, and then go to sessions and take classes so that you get more tools in, in your tool belt, like the one that I'll be giving you for a proactive and reactive. No, that makes a lot of sense, just being able to anticipate 
difficult situations coming up. Uh, yeah. could, you, could you give us an example of something like that? Well, um, sure. So in healthcare interpreting, for example, um, and I, somehow I find this to come up more in healthcare interpreting than in legal. I, I find that I'm often more in the position of having to explain what my job is and tell people what is or is not appropriate when I'm in a healthcare setting. I don't, I'm not entirely sure why, but um, something that we have in healthcare interpreting that we don't necessarily have in legal interpreting all the time is called a pre-session, where at the very least, at the very beginning of your session, you introduce yourself, you say that everything will be kept confidential, um, you say that everything will be interpreted, you ask them to speak in the first person. It's the basics of how to have an interpreted session. And a lot of interpreters don't do that. They, they get overwhelmed or kind of intimidated because the doctor comes into the room and they are very, you know, okay, we have to start. Like the doctor's already annoyed because they think it's gonna take longer because, and it's your fault because you're the interpreter. So then we don't give a pre-session and then halfway through the doctor or the, or the patient says something and then they turn to you and say, don't interpret that right? And now you're in a quandary. Now you're in an ethical quandary because on the one hand, you've had somebody ask you to do something that if you do it is going to break your code of ethics, which says you have to interpret everything. And so, so I, I really emphasize do your pre-session. I don't care if the doctor's in a rush. It will make everything go smoother and will make everybody know what to expect. And in the long run, it'll save time if you just take those 30 seconds at the beginning. So um, one of the things that you can emphasize in that pre-session is that everything will be interpreted. And now you've said it. So, so you've covered your back so that if later they request that you don't interpret, um, then, then you say, I'm sorry, actually, as I said earlier, everything has to be interpreted. And, 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 and they were warned. And so they should take it a little bit more seriously. Um, there was another one that came to my mind while I was talking that was similar to that one. But, oh, like, if I notice that somebody speaks some English and they come in and you know I'm there as their Spanish interpreter and I've sort of been paying attention in the waiting room oh wow this person speaks English then then right away from the beginning I'll say something like you know if you don't need the interpreter I don't need to be here but if you are going to use me I'm going to ask that you please only speak in Spanish because otherwise it will get really confusing so I want them to be empowered to actually have their own conversation with the doctor if they want to but I'm not going to be like the partial interpreter who then <laughs> what ends up happening when people speak all the different languages and, and you don't know what to expect is you end up speaking like Spanish to the doctor and English to the patient and it gets really confusing. So that's another thing that you can nip it in the bud if you just include that in your pre-session. Right. To go back to your first example, it just sounds like a really frustrating experience when people jump at you and tell you not to interpret. So will you be talking about also sort of managing your own emotions and not letting people get to you? I, it's not something that was specifically um, part of my session. However, I would be happy to address that if it comes up. And a lot of times these sessions, I have a PowerPoint planned and I'll have a handout sometimes, but a lot of the time it's based on the questions that people uh, bring to the table. So, uh, and that's one of the trickiest is how to handle your emotions. Um, I say taking care of yourself and remembering to breathe. Those are the two most important pieces of advice. Um, but yeah, it's not something that was going to specifically be addressed, but it may end up being covered if, if people raise the question. All right. That's great. Thank you. Hi there. My name is Jay Marciano. I'm the director of machine translation at Lionbridge. I've been at Lionbridge since 
2010, and I've been involved with machine translation for 20 years, both in the development and in the application of it. I'm doing one of the AST, the Advanced Skills and Training Sessions, um, which is called nmt and Me, Securing Your Future as a Language Professional in the Age of Artificial Intelligence and Neural Machine Translation. And I'm doing a general session called How Artificial Intelligence and Neural Machine Translation Are Shaping Our Industry. Speaking of artificial intelligence and neural machine translation, um, this is something that scares some translators or at least makes them feel uneasy or unsure about their future. Should we expect our jobs as we know them to go away in the next 10 years? So the important thing in the question is the as we know them. So the language services industry will probably expand. Um, our jobs as we know them might go away, but, but there will be many jobs, but the jobs will change. But that's not any different in our industry from any other industry. So um, very likely AI and neural machine translation and whatever future iterations of machine translation are, they will probably lead to more and more international multilingual communication and not less of it. And there will be need for support of that. So the job of translator and the job of interpreter might change, but they will certainly still be jobs for people with language skills and people interested in multilingual communication. Uh, well, how would um, our new jobs look like? Are we going to have to be AI trainers? Or what do you think will happen? Well, um, unfortunately, I don't have a crystal ball. So, but I, I do have an educated guess because I've been in the industry for 20 years. And I think there, there will still be room for traditional translators and for interpreters. However, that won't be a growth area in the industry, I don't think. And so anything that embraces and supports the use of language technologies, I think has real growth potential moving forward. And that would, of course, include um, artificial intelligence experts, but generally speaking, people with language skills aren't really interested in computer coding and things like that. So then it's a matter of doing the things that have to do with language, filling in the skills that the computers are not good at or the types of services that allow the software to perform well. And there are all kinds of uh, job descriptions that are in that category. So something that I think is extremely important is what I call data curation. And so it's taking care of a company's linguistic assets, uh, which would be organizing them, make sure they're of very good quality. And when I say um, linguistic assets, of course, I mean translation memories, I mean the content that they've authored, I mean glossaries and style guides and things like that. All of these things can be used by artificial intelligence systems to learn about how language is used. However, the system, these kinds of systems need to train on very high quality data. And so ensuring that a company's data is of high quality is what I call data curation. And that's something that I think um, will be very big in the future. And then there are all kinds of other things around terminology management, 
um, computational linguistics, and of course, all the stuff around machine learning, but they're also very um, linguistically oriented responsibilities around there in terms of supervising the machine learning and evaluating it, um, seeing if the systems are actually improving better, uh, providing better translations or not. Um, and of course, all of these technologies have to be used and they have to be used as part of a multilingual communication strategy. So being um, the person or on the team of a corporation that creates that multilingual strategy is also something that I um, see being a very interesting job for people with language skills and something that will actually take advantage of these technologies. Thank you. It sounds like uh, the future will be less straight up translation and or interpreting and more being able to integrate the MT and or AI into a bigger picture. Would you say that's correct? The way I look at it is that translation has always been a necessary evil, if you will. So it's not one of the things that you think you wake up in the morning and think, oh, I'm going to buy myself some translation today. Um, translation is necessary for people to communicate with other people. And so the value of communication will remain the same, which is very, very valuable, of course. Um, and the fact that um, automation will be able to create some of this communication, both on the authoring side and on the translation side, uh, will will yield more and more of this communication um, and but the so the per word price that that gets paid for translation will very likely drop um, and but I don't even like to think of it that way because I think we'll be moving to different models of payment for translation I'm not exactly sure what those models are but one thing that is sure is that um, machine translation is now on a daily basis processing more words than traditional translators do in an entire year. And so there are billions and billions of words being translated every single day by automated systems. And about 100 billion words or so being translated by professional translators um, each year. And so, um, so the jobs will change dramatically, the pricing schemes will change dramatically, and the way I like to put it is we all tend to think that technology is coming after our jobs because we all have a fairly self-centered view of the world. But in fact, every industry is under uh, pressure to do things more and more efficiently. And so we're no different in the language services industry. And so the, the thing that I like to say is that if you are a mediocre translator or interpreter, you're in trouble. But just the same, if you're a mediocre truck driver or if you're a mediocre farmer or if you're a mediocre stockbroker, you're in trouble because those things that are relatively easy to do will be automated and, and you have to develop skills that are more nuanced and more precise. Uh, and that responds to the job market that's there. Um, and people who do that, who have the ability to adjust to various technologies, will, I'm, I'm very sure, will thrive. Thank you. <laughs> to be honest, uh, a lot of, I feel like a lot of 
especially freelance translators, have a knee-jerk reaction of exactly that kind. And I, I find myself doing the same when I hear people mentioning Google Translate for websites. Um, so thank you for sort of a more nuanced um, explanation of what is happening with the MT and AI. Uh, if we were to talk about content types and types of documentation, which ones are sort of the most likely candidates to be uh, well taken over, if you like, by the automated translation? Yep. So um, when I talk about automation, I, I leave literary translation just off because literary translation has never been a and people hate to hear this, but it's never been a substantial part of the translation market. It's, it's something less than 1% of, of the translation market is literary in nature. And I don't expect that to be changing much at all. So um, content that is artistic in nature will continue, continue to be translated traditionally. That is by a single professional literary translator translating the novel and working probably very closely with the author um, to make sure that all of the nuance gets uh, translated, of course, from, from the source language into the target language. Um, but that's a tiny, tiny fraction of the industry. Of the rest of the content that's out there, the rule holds true that anything that is simple and formulaic is by definition something that a computer will be able to do well at. And again, I'm talking beyond um, language as well. So any task that can, that has a very regular aspect to it. So anything in terms of um, factory work, you know, putting things together or standard maintenance on things or things where you could really describe step by step how to do that job those tasks will be automated. Um, and in terms of language, the more straightforward and the more predictable and the more um, consistent the content is, the more likely a computer will be able to translate it extremely quickly, of course, extremely inexpensively, and probably relatively well. Um, something that we are seeing with the with the increased use of neural machine translation is that translations are getting more and more fluent. So, and when I say translations, there I mean machine translations are getting more fluent. Now, the problem with that is that it also makes it harder for a post editor or a reviewer to find the errors in it for the simple fact that when something sounds fluent, you're much more likely to gloss over or just skip over the errors and just miss them. For this reason, I think that the idea of translating um, uh, technical content will become largely a task of computers followed by a review pass. And that review pass will, the reviewer will process a large number of words per day, um, and we'll have to really be trained well on identifying the types of errors that machine translation tends to make at that time. And these errors won't really be very easy to spot simply because of the fluency of, of the output of the MT systems. So this is something that's gonna be a very 
it's going to be a highly skilled task. But if people glom on to how much they're getting paid per word, then they're going to be disappointed because the review process, um, a reviewer tends to do thousands and thousands of words per day, whereas a translator is somewhere between two and 3,000 words a day. And so a, a reviewer is probably going to be expected to do 10 times that in a day. So what would you say would be a more viable pricing model in that case? Gosh, I, I, I really wish I had the answer to that. So that's something that I'm extremely interested in. And, and the one thing that I know for sure is that it's not going to be a decision that's made by one part of the industry. It's going to be a decision that's made by translators, by customers, and by language service providers. And so Lionbridge, which as one of the world's biggest translation company, of course has some of the world's biggest translation customers. And these customers are very interested in exploring different ways of paying for translation which means that Lionbridge has to look at different ways of measuring the efficiency of translation in terms of the human steps so that the LSP can be sure that it's producing translations of the appropriate quality that the customer wants um, at the price that the customer wants in a way that fairly pays the translator and still makes a profit for the LSP. And so there are a variety of models that people look at in terms of having um, either going back to having many more in-house translators. The, the, you know, the large LSPs have only been around since the mid-90s or so, so we're a little more than 20 years into the age of the, of the really large translation companies. And at first, um, there were a lot of in-house translators at these uh, companies, and then the pendulum swung towards having uh, using more freelance translators. And I think the, the pendulum is swinging back a little bit towards having in-house translators. And I think we'll end up with a model where an LSP has enough internal translators to handle the known amount of work that they're going to have. And then using freelancers uh, very regularly to cover the need for work that was not expected that came in. And the advantage, of course, to having in-house translators is that um, you, you pay in-house translators per hour and not per word, and that allows you to work with the translators to get as efficient as possible. So because the better the company does, the better that translator does. With freelance translators, there's the ability, or at least there are certainly um, people who are thinking about paying retainers to translators, so guaranteeing them a certain amount of work per month um, at a particular rate, and then paying per word after that, or, or something along those lines. But something, <laughs> the one thing that I'm sure of is that customers really do, well, some customers, I'll put it that way, are looking to move away from per word pricing. Um, and because of that, uh, anybody who is trying to respond to that market has to look at that as well. However, you don't look at it in isolation. It's because we're, we're in this ecosystem of, of language professionals, language service providers, and the customers. And, and it has to be fair all around, right? So the translator needs to 
um, know that their work is highly respected and they need to be paid appropriately. The customer needs to be getting the quality that they need at a price that makes sense for them. And, and some people say, well, why do we even need an LSP at that point? And you need an LSP for scale. Um, and, and by that, I mean um, the, the big LSPs have customers that have a single translation project into, in some cases, um, 30, 50. One of our bigger customers commonly translates into 100 languages. And for a small um, a single language vendor or just a, a company that does a few languages, that's too big of a, of a challenge. And so the bigger companies will still be involved in with those big, very complicated, very sophisticated customers. And I mean sophisticated in terms of their technological needs. Um, uh, and and be, because of that, so, so in terms of putting all the puzzle pieces together, that's what an LSP does. Um, particularly well and at scale. And so all of those three parts of this of this symbiotic triangle, the customer, the LSP, and the language professional, um, we need to decide what the best way forward is. Um, and I wish I could just tell you what the answer is right now, but I think that will be revealed over the course of the next uh, few years, certainly. Thinking of those who are just embarking on the path of becoming a translator, uh, what are some of the most important skills and qualities that they need to learn in order to be competitive? Yeah, that's exactly the question. So, so I have a 20-year-old um, a son and a 23-year-old daughter. My daughter's doing a master's degree. My son's working on his bachelor's now. And they're not, they have nothing to do, they're both bilingual. My wife is German. They both speak German and English. However, they're not going into the translation industry or they're not planning to, not because of anything that I said. Um, but what I tell them is the same thing I would tell anybody going into any industry. And that is think about data, data science, data processing, whatever you study, make sure you have a couple courses on databases, on structuring data on curating data. It doesn't matter what in industry you're in, the fact that we accumulate more and more data year after year, according to one study I saw, every year we produce 40% more data than we did the year before, which is stunning. If, if you think about how that piles up, it's, it's amazing that we have enough uh, capacity just to store it all. Um, but that data is incredibly valuable. And, and I'm speaking much more broadly than just the translation industry. However, narrowing it down to our industry, um, that data is going to provide incredible efficiencies and, and, um, and information about what customers need and how the translations are used and will help us to um, put a real ROI, a real return of investment on translations. Uh, because we'll be able to track what happens with that with that information. And so being able to leverage that data is something that is, uh, I, I would encourage anybody getting a degree in any field to think about studying data science as a minor or, or at least um, become knowledgeable about it and be comfortable with databases and with, with structured data and, and uh, and, and don't be afraid of it. 
um, because it's just a bunch of ones and zeros in the end. And in our case, there, there, are, there are letters and characters that make up words and sentences. But it's that, it's that data which provides the education, if you will, for artificial intelligence systems. And it's the people who have a real facility on using that data and understanding the value of it who are going to thrive in every industry, including ours, as we move forward. Thank you so much, Jay. It's been really enlightening and fascinating, and we look forward to your presentations. Um, you're very welcome. It's really a fascinating time to be in our industry. There's so much going on. Anybody, any translators out there who are skeptical about the advance of machine translation, all I just go try it out. You'll see that, you know, go to Google Translate, go to Microsoft Translator, go to DeepL, go to any one of the systems that are out there, run a couple sentences, run a couple thousand sentences, look at the output and understand that it has gotten better in the last few years, and by that I mean the last three years, than it did in the previous 15 or 20 years before that. So things are changing and it's up to all of us to change with it. Yeah, you know, I did just that last week. I was listening to a podcast with Andre Morris, who's a German conversion copywriter with an agency. And in the end, he invited people to subscribe. And if they don't speak German, to translate his um, articles via Google Translate. So, of course, you know, me being in translation, I was like, oh, my gosh. You know, how can you possibly suggest this? This is a terrible idea. Um, actually for comprehension works just fine. And so the question is, of course, always, what is the customer using the translations for? And if it's something that is critical to their business, then they are absolutely going to want to ensure that that translation is of the highest possible quality. And if it's something that for them is nice to have, but not really critical, then they're going to be less interested in the quality and they're not going to be willing to pay as much for it. And so that's the kind of role that um, machine translation can play. I often say that companies are willing to spend on a translation some percentage of what they spent on creating the content. So the more they spent on creating it, it is, is indicative of how important it is to them. And then they'll be willing to spend some portion of that or some percentage of that on the translation. Whereas if they didn't spend anything or very little, so for user-generated content, for reviews of products and things like that, um, which have real value for companies, but they're going to be willing to pay much less for the translations of those. And so that's a place where perhaps machine translation will be um, a perfectly satisfactory um, solution. Right. So in your experience, the value of translation is always less, well, the price of content translation is always less than that of the content creation. Well, if, if you're talking about the, cre you know, if you're translating it into 100 languages, then no, it's going to be more expensive. But if you're talking about translating into one language, then generally speaking, if somebody spent, you know, five hours writing a three-page white paper, um, and that person is an engineer who's a highly paid product specialist for, for a company, then of course the company would not expect to pay that much for the translation. So, so people often underestimate how much it costs to create a document. 
if you add up all of the hours that go into them and the hours of research and everything like that, then it's a lot of money that goes into creating the original content. And generally speaking, the translation will be a fraction of that, not a multiple of that, per language, of course. If you want to go into all 7,000 human languages, it's going to be pretty darn expensive. Yeah, it all adds up. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. It's, it's really my pleasure, and um, I look forward to um, seeing your listeners at, at the ATA conference, and, um, and I would encourage them to come right up to me and say they heard this, and if they have any questions, I'm always there to answer them, and even more, actually, to learn from them about what their concerns are. Hi everybody, let me first introduce myself. My name is Samah Ragab, I am from Cairo, Egypt. I'm an ISO 17100 lead auditor and certified translation provider. I am very specialized in CAD tools and terminology management software. And I've been working for the United Nations and the World Bank for the past 15 years. And I do a lot of desktop publishing projects and I'm also a certified localizer. I've trained thousands of translators worldwide to help them excel in translation-related software applications. And I've given workshops in like more than 15 countries in Europe and the US. I have over 28 years in total of expertise in the translation and localization industry. And I believe I always strive to set the ben benchmarks for quality work with a focus on Arabic and Middle Eastern translations. My hobbies include fishing, angling, snorkeling, scuba diving, swimming, anything that has to do with the sea, I'm in it. And I used to be a professional singer during my college years, not anymore. And I have a wonderful family, a wonderful wife, one son, and three lovely daughters. Who is the session best for? agency representatives, freelancers, localizers, or all of the above? Well, my coming session is a sort of an advanced one. And of course, it is valid for all sort of participants like agency representatives, freelancers, localizers, etc. And even though my session is, is always full of secrets of trade, and that means revealing a lot of tips and tricks that can really compromise my competitive edge. Yet, I believe that it's, it's open for everybody, even agency representatives. So what is web scraping and how can it help us save time? Well, web scraping is, in simple terms, is a technique used to automate the process uh, of extracting large amounts of data from websites or other online file formats like PDF files, then saving them to a local file in your computer or to a database or spreadsheet format. Therefore, instead of manually copying the data from websites or difficult to convert files, the web scraping software or technique will perform the same task within a fraction of the time actually needed to copy and paste. And thus, this will help translators build huge offline glossaries and term bases. 
And I can safely say that web scraping is going to be the most important element in the translation industry in the next few years. How challenging is your work for such prominent organizations as ISO, the UN and the World Bank? Do you feel like there is enough hours in a day? Working for international organizations such as the United Nations or the World Bank is always very challenging because of the diversity of the topics translated and they cover so many fields and that is what adds enjoyment to my work as there is absolutely no monotony of whatsoever and the only thing that I can complain from is the lack of time to have a bit of rest or have more time for my family. Also being an ISO 17100 Lead Auditor and Certified Translation Provider allows me to stay ahead of the competition and always set the benchmark rules for quality work. I keep on trying to enhance the standard and allow others to perceive the importance of being certified and working according uh, strict quality rules. What are some common mistakes that translators make when doing research or managing their files? That is a very difficult question to answer in such a short conversation because there are a lot of aspects to cover and argue about. Mm. However, I can say that when researching for the most used translation for any difficult term, I always teach my students and collaborators to be excellent decision makers. That is very crucial. And that is the most important thing to me, to be a decision maker, to be able to make the right choice and be prepared to defend it well, and even document why you have chosen that particular translation over other possibly used terms. The purpose of my session is to allow translators to be able to build an arsenal of reliable offline resources and hence minimize the time needed to research for terminology online. That would really speed up the, their productivity by at least 40%, especially when working on a medical document, technical document, legal document, or very specialized subject. As for managing files, let me reply to that question during my session, as I would have one excellent section for this for the participants of my workshop. I look forward to meeting you all in the coming ADA conference, and I believe that together we can have a really fruitful session. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. Samachrek. My name is Manuela Sampaio. I'm a Portuguese-Brazilian translator. I have a law degree and I worked for five years as a corporate lawyer until 2007 when I left my last job as a lawyer and started working with legal translations so that I could work from home and have more time with my daughter. In 2012, I concluded a professional interpreter training. And so since then, I've also been working as a conference interpreter. 
And in the ATA this year, I'm going to be talking about project management tips, tricks, and tools for freelancers. Could you tell us a little more about your personal experience of project management? So I work mostly with direct clients and every now and then I have to deal with projects that are into other source languages in addition to the ones that I work with or sometimes that are with a very large volume. Uh, so I have to split it with other colleagues and also since I started conference interpreting often there might be scheduling issues or I'm just busy in general so I'll have to outsource other jobs and that requires some project management as well and I also act as a consult interpreter where I recruit and coordinate a team of interpreters for my clients and their events. Do you have any horror stories to share or any stories about saving the day? I couldn't think of any specific horror stories, but I, well, do know some horror stories, but I don't want to name names. <laughs> Fair uh, enough. <laughs> but I have run into problems with colleagues not meeting the, the deadlines, or the worst situation is where we have a good reference for someone and we put them on the team but the quality ends up not being what we expected. So we either have to do, to redo the translation or um, as something that happened to me recently at an event was that I had to replace the interpreter because the quality of their interpreting was not up to par. So when you plan a project, do you try to anticipate things like that? Yes. Um, to me, one of the most important parts of project management and planning a project is precisely recruiting the right people for that specific job, uh, which is why I prefer to work with uh, I have a set, a fixed set almost of colleagues that I work with. But of course, every now and then you can't get those people that you're used to working with on your team and you have to find someone new and that's where you look for references and things like that. But I'm starting to be pickier and pickier even with the references. I'm going to talk about the sort of the betting process as part of the project management? I'm going to speak a little bit about that. Uh, one of the focuses on my session is the fact that project management has a lot to do with people management. So you have to have good people skills to be able to do project management properly. And the vetting process is certainly a part of that. How did you come up with the idea for this presentation? Was it based on uh, personal observations or challenges? Yes. I know that many translators prefer to work with agencies and LSPs to avoid having the project management burden and just spending time on the bureaucracy of things. 
But I also have many colleagues that deal with direct clients like I do and with large projects. And I'm sure that they can benefit from learning a few tips and tricks in project management. And what gave me the idea is because this is actually a part of the work that I like to do. I love uh, the planning and the managing and putting things on spreadsheets or other tools. But for a long time, I did the project management part very intuitively. And it worked out okay, but I thought that there were many ways that I could improve it and really started to study the matter. And I took a short course in project management, which also gave me some very good insights. And this has certainly helped me improve and actually optimize my time. That sounds fascinating. I look forward <laughs> to your presentation very much. During the uh, session, do you think the tips and tricks that you will share will help us control not just the professional side of our lives, but also the personal lives and responsibilities? Certainly, because I think life is actually a set of projects that we manage, not only just our jobs, but our family our home, when we go on trips, these are all projects that can certainly benefit from good management and proper organization. So I'm going to be sharing how to use some tools such as Trello, Asana, and Todoist, not only when you're managing translation and interpretation jobs, um, but also how you can fit these into your personal life as well. So I look forward to seeing you in New Orleans. Likewise, I'm very excited about your presentation to you, Manuela. And uh, thank you for finding time to join us. My pleasure.